Welcome to Frictionless Marketing, an exploration of how modern marketers are building their brands, reaching their audiences, and thriving in this post-advertising world. Welcome back to Frictionless Marketing. Adam Collins is the Chief Communications and Corporate Affairs Officer at Molson Coors. In years prior, Adam spent four years working for the office of Mayor Rahm Emanuel and was the Communications Director for the Chicago Police Department. In this wide-ranging conversation with Lippy Taylor CEO Paul Dyer, Adam discusses all things Molson Coors, including the Super Bowl ad they launched in the metaverse, as well as his executive leadership advice and details about Miller Coors' long-standing rivalry with Anheuser-Busch. All of this and so much more in today's episode of Frictionless Marketing. Without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Molson Coors CCO Adam Collins. Hi, this is Paul Dyer here with Lippy Taylor, and I'm joined today by Adam Collins. Adam, uh, thanks, first of all, for spending your time with us, and we're excited to hear from you. You bet, Paul. Thanks for having me on. So, Adam, I thought maybe we could start just by maybe hearing a little bit of the rundown of your career path and how it's different than sort of the, the, the you know, I guess the typical career path <laughs> in the sense of, you know, being both on the politics side, the brand side. I mean, can you just maybe just walk us through it? Yeah, absolutely. So my, my background prior to joining Molson Coors is almost exclusively in politics. I worked in Kentucky and Florida and Wisconsin, and then uh, ultimately in Chicago for, for almost 10 years before for joining Molson Coors. Um, you know, and I think personally, I think there's a, a real, um, there's a lot of symmetry in terms of how communications shows up in both those places. Ultimately, you know, I look at it as you're trying to sell a product or you're trying to sell a policy, you're trying to get someone to, to support a policy that you might have when you're in government, or trying to sell a politician to voters, right? Um, and so, yes, the, the context in which those things happen is remarkably different, but really, ultimately, the, the skills and the thought process around it are very, very similar. Well, I appreciate the directness of, we're trying to sell something here, right? We're in the <laughs> business of persuasion. Um, but I'm, I'm also obviously, you know, we, we sometimes have to balance, right, persuasiveness and selling with protection, brand reputation, you know, those kinds of things. Being in the beer business, you know, you're really in an interesting position because you have to, there's a lot of protection around, um, you know, only communicating in venues with um, people of the right age and those kinds of things. Um, but then there's also a lot of, um you know, it's a, it's a pretty cavalier industry when it comes to the way that some of the beer brands market themselves and the competition, you know, with AB InBev and all of that. So I'd love to just hear you talk a little bit about how you balance that, you know, persuasiveness, promotion with protection. I think there are, there are foundational elements that have to be incorporated. So before we even start saying, making decisions, it's, you know, for example, when you think about social media, our, our brands and our company aren't on platforms that don't age game, right? And that's one thing that we can do to ensure that we're not um, promoting ourselves to to folks who are not of legal drinking age, right? Um, you know, we do a, a lot of work with um, sports partnerships, particularly at universities, um, to ensure not just that we're we can sell our beer at someone's football stadium or the basketball stadium, but also that we can actually help them as as they think about um, responsible consumption. Uh, policies and practices they can they can put on campus, and so that sort of is a foundation before you even start getting to 
well, how are we talking about Coors Light? How are we talking about Miller Light? Where does the company think we need to play from a from a portfolio um, position? Um, and so those are sort of inherent to who we are and how we operate, um, whether that's in the United States or any market around the world. It's interesting. You talk about um, age gating, right? Mm-hmm. And it's one of the one of the challenges, obviously, of participating in shared channels. Think places like TikTok, you know, um, the metaverse, you know, et cetera. TikTok obviously has been notoriously difficult for the the um, alcoholic beverage industry. Um, you guys managed though this Super Bowl with Miller Lite, right, to figure it out with with the metaverse. You launched the yep. first big game ad in the metaverse. Um, can you talk a little bit about the thinking behind this idea, your approach to Web3, how you're kind of walking that fine line of, you know, it's a it's a youthful channel, but obviously you're doing it in an appropriate way. Yeah, I mean, look, the, the marketing team at Molson Coors, uh, we have brilliant marketers um, and they're they have done an immense amount of thinking about who our brand, what our brands are, you know, what they represent, what, what their position is in the world, why people would, would say I'm going to walk into a, a 7-Eleven or a Walmart or a Target and pick up a six pack of Coors Light versus Miller Light, uh, for example. Right. So that uh, I want to give um, appropriate credit. There's been a lot of work from the, from the, from the um, brand PR team um, that, that I work with um, here in our agencies as well, but the, the marketing teams have done tremendous work in this space. And I think, you know, when you think about the purpose of our business, our company's purpose is um, is to unite uh, unite people to celebrate all life's moments, right? And what's happening in the metaverse is that people are uniting, they're gathering. It's just in a different different way in a different space. And so, how do we tap into that um, in a way that where people can come together in a space? We created a space. We created the, the world's first branded bar in the metaverse, and they were able to. Um, and I wish I could explain to you the 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 tech aspect of how they accomplish these things. Uh, you know, I'm going to spare you the, I'm going to spare myself the embarrassment. I think you would lose all of us anyway. So, (laughs) well, I would lose myself pretty quickly, but we were able to, 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 you know, put age restrictions on it. And it was a middle light branded bar. So you could go to the bar. There was a bouncer at the bar. You could, you went in the bar and you could pour yourself a Miller light and they had, um, you know, they had a pool table and it was, it was a bar and people came there and gathered there. You could get Miller light t-shirts and Miller light hats, um, and there's some interesting data on the amount of time that people spent, phys- uh, not physically, in the, meta- uh, in the metaverse, they're in that bar was almost 30 minutes, which is pretty incredible, right? So people are coming wow. together there and having that shared experience and having that over a virtual beer. And, you know, some people were having a, a real beer um, at the same time, but they were having a shared experience. And that's really what beer is all about. So I thought it was a, a brilliant idea. Uh, really well executed, um, you know, and to be the first and to be kind of a pioneer uh, in that space um, was also uh, a nice feather in the cap of the of the of the team that, that worked on that. And what a statistic! Thirty minutes of yeah. branded experience in the digital channel. I mean, I'd love to compare that to how much time people spend on average on the brand websites, right? Which is, of course, going down year after year after year. Yep. Um, so. You mentioned the marketing team, right? Giving credit where credit's due. You mentioned your brand PR team. Can you just talk a little bit about um, within Molson Coors? What does that structure look like? Is there, you know, is there an organizational reporting relationship there, or, or you know, how does that work? Yeah. So, comms communication sits under under 
under my team, under communications and corporate affairs. Um, I have a personal view that that's the right way to have it, right? Um, so you have in, in communications, you have internal comms, you have sales and distributor comms, um, you have uh, sort of your traditional corporate communications, although we call it corporate affairs because it's much, much broader um, than just the corporate communications um, sort of role. There's digital teams in there, our um, community affairs team sits in there, actually our tour centers sit in, there, sit in there, which is a totally fun aspect of the of the beer industry. And then you have um, brand PR, right? So each of those four teams is, is broken down, not necessarily by who they partner with inside the organization, but by who the audience is. You have employees, you have our customers, consumers, and then you have um, sort of the outside world from a corporate from a corporate standpoint, investors, analysts, and our hometown communities, right? If you think about that last one, it's a little it's a little bigger. Um, but ultimately, that the audience is, is who we're driving towards, right? So each of those teams, certainly brand PR, partners with different parts of the organization. So there's a obviously a, it's beer industry, right? It's a massive marketing function full of really brilliant people who do amazing things. I wish I was as creative as they are uh, to come up with the stuff they come up with. But our our brand PR team partners with them to think about how the brands are showing up, what activations are we doing? Um, and uh, how does that, how is that going to help uh, from a consumer poll standpoint? <clears throat> Just as much as the, as a customer, as a team that works with customers or employees or, or sort of that, you know, from a corporate lens, our hometown communities and, and uh, sort of our core stakeholders. Now, obviously in the last couple of years, we've seen sort of a, a great reshuffling in terms of, the prioritization, the emphasis, you know, just the, the level of attention being placed on these different audiences, right? So you're talking about your different stakeholder groups. I'm just curious in terms of, you know, the, the way that you are, are looking at all your various stakeholder groups, has there been a real um, shift in emphasis between, in, you know, employees, investors, customers, distributors, et cetera, or is it really maintained sort of business as usual? That's an interesting question, Paul. I, I, this isn't a dodge. I worked in politics for almost 20 years, but I promise this isn't a dodge. It's it's, it's a little bit of both and a, and a little bit of neither, right? Like it's not business as usual. I mean, I, I think anyone who would, would suggest to you that the last two years has been business as usual um, is kidding themselves. Whether that's because if you think about each of those audiences, the, the where they are in the world today is night and day different than where they were a couple of years ago. But I, I think, you know, so from where we are with our our company, my our goal in communications is to build belief in the company, the company's future. That's our job, right? Because if you're an employee and you have you believe in the, in the future of this company, where we're headed, you're going to want to come to work. Everyone wants to work at a winner, right? Um, if you're a prospective employee, if you if you live in Milwaukee, if you live in Golden or Montreal or Toronto or Chicago, if you live in Albany, uh, Georgia, if you want you want to you you're more likely to want to work at a company that you think has a, has a better future. If you're an investor, if you're an analyst, you're, you're more likely to, to, um, to invest behind a company, obviously, that you think has a, has a better future. If you're, if you're a customer of ours, if you're a retailer, if you're a distributor, you're more likely to prioritize our brands in the marketplace if you think we have a better future as a, as a company, right? And so that's why I say it's, it's not really different because I would argue that that's where we were two and a half years ago, too. Now, what's changed is the context in which that conversation happens, right? What people care about, what people need, what an employee needs to have belief in the company's future is different today than it was in January of 2020. 
And so that's the space where we have to continually adjust and adapt and shift and understand what our, not just what we want to say, but what our audiences need to hear to have that belief in, in the future of the company. And I love that emphasis on belief. I haven't actually heard it articulated quite like that before, but it makes complete sense. And it, it brings in an emotional tone in addition to the more rational, you know, we talk about trust, we talk about reputation, things that it can be a little bit more rational. Um, so obviously generating belief in the future of the company from the corporate affairs seat um, in, in this modern day and age um, has a large ESG component. Um, you have at the brand level done a lot of really interesting things, right? Coors Light um, essentially removing 400,000 pounds of plastic by getting rid of the plastic rings and six packs, the chill boards that are on top of buildings to deflect heat and save electricity. Um, can you talk a little bit about your approach to ESG? And is this something that is really being driven from the top or is it something where the brands are themselves seeing the, the, sort of the marketing value of doing these things. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's both and. Um, and I, I'd also point out that uh, just this morning, um, the chill boards were shortlisted um, uh, for the titanium award at the CAN uh, um, uh, award, CAN marketing Congratulations. award. Congratulations. Uh, next, uh, I think it's in two weeks. Yeah, it's, it's fantastic. It's a great recognition. But it's, it's both, Paul, right? Um, the company actually has a deep, deep history in this, in this space. We... Um, pioneered the aluminum recyclable can 60, 62 or 63 years ago. Bill Coors came up with it because um, he was tired of seeing steel cans uh, on the roadway that was you know, littered in trash. Um, developed, spent years and millions of dollars developing a recyclable aluminum can. Um, and rather than patent it, he gave, he gave that knowledge to the, that intellectual property to the world so that other companies could, um, could use the same technology. And that's why I'm sitting here drinking out of a, out of an aluminum recyclable can right now. Um, so it's, it's really, listeners, he's drinking cold brew coffee. This is a ZOA actually. It's one of our, it's our energy drink. It's, a, it's, oh, it's awesome. an energy drink, but it is yeah. not a beer at 10 It is not a beer. It is not a beer. It's a little early. It's a little early. Um, but, it's really ingrained in who in who we are. And if you think about beer as a product, as something you consume, good water is vital to having good beer. Good ingredients are vital to having good beer. You can't have good beer with crummy barley and crummy hops. Um, and so that's we have a, a barley program that we um, have had for I think this is the seventy sixth year. Um, it's a generations old barley program where our company has agronomists that work for us that actually go out in the fields and partner with uh, growers um, uh, and talk about sustainable agriculture because it's actually better for the uh, it's better for the ingredients that ultimately we put in our um, in our in our in our beer in our Coors Light that we have at the end of the day. Um, so there there are certainly those things that are happening at a at a high level from a company standpoint. We're just investing right now. We're, we're in the middle of a major modernization of the Golden Brewery, which is the largest single site um, brewery in the world. And, and when that's done, um, I think at the tail end of next year, it's going to save 100 million gallons of water a year from, from spillage, essentially, wow. in the brewing process, right? So there are those things that are happening at the biggest level, too. And I think what's really exciting is what you see happening then with the brands in conjunction with the corporate, right? The Coors Light's a fantastic example. So that's, they're leading the way. Um, the, uh, 
with the removal of six pack rings and transitioning to uh, recyclable paperboard uh, wrappers um, around the packaging. Um, that's something we're also doing for our entire portfolio uh, across um, North America as well. And that's obviously a significant investment from the company standpoint mm-hmm. uh, to do that. Because if you think about all the lines that have to change in each of the breweries and the, the ways that the company will have to adapt from the supply chain um, and manufacturing operations standpoint, there's a ton that goes into that. Um, so it's both, right? And that's what's really exciting to me because Ultimately, I think, you know, the worst thing in, in ESG um, is to proclaim something and then not actually live it, right? Um, and you see, you see companies that get, they get called out for this uh, regularly. Um, so what's really exciting to me is to see sort of the corporate end of things and the brand end of things really coming together in this, in this um, significant way to make a meaningful difference for our company, but also for the world around us. That's, that's great. And, um, I didn't know all that history. So I'm really honest. I think that's a great history lesson for people listening as well in terms of what a single and singular, singularly minded entrepreneur can do to, to better the world. Um, so let's talk a little bit about data. All right. So data is, it's, it's been a massive topic in our industry, whether that's um, you know, big data, small data, you know, trying to figure out insights, trying to measure the impact of our work. Um, but most recently, in addition to obviously all of the data and communications, you guys launched the world's dumbest math problem. Do you want to, first of all, just tell our listeners what the world's dumbest math problem is? Well, yeah, the world's, the world's dumbest math problem was sort of centered around, um, what has more calorie? What has fewer calories, right? Uh, and uh, Miller sixty four has, as the name would imply, sixty four calories. Um, and there was uh, there was some competitive, uh, some good natured competitiveness between us and Anheuser Busch uh, about low cal, low uh, carb uh, beverages. And they were out uh, with uh, with Mick Ultra, and we made the point that the world's dumbest math problem would be. What has what has fewer calories in it, uh, and Miller sixty four has quite quite a bit fewer calories uh, than a McUltra does, and tastes great too. And and this is obviously just one example and sort of a long string of this relationship where you kind of jab back and forth at each other. <laughs> um, and there's there's it's interesting when you look across industries, right? Many of the listeners to this podcast come from different industries. Um, in food and beverage, it happens a little bit more often. You've got Wendy's and McDonald's poking each other on Twitter and things like that. In other industries, it's total faux pas. You'd never do yeah. it, right? Um, just curious from, you know, having sat in this seat now, you're an outsider from the industry, but you've come in for, you know, for the last several years and you're, you're running communications at one of the most storied food and beverage brands, you know, companies out there. Um, is it working, right? <laughs> do you see it generating the sort of, um, you know, what you're hoping it would generate for the brand? And what is it that you think, you know, that um, this sort of back and forth and playful, you know, poking with your competitors generates? Well, what I'd say is top line, yes, it's working. Um, the undercurrent is, you know, ultimately you've got to keep your consumers in mind. That's got to be your top priority, right? Um, and so I know that, that, that our teams and the marketing teams, that's, that is your North Star. Um, so it's not just, you can't just do it. You can't have a little bit of a tiff just because it's fun or funny. Um, it's ultimately got to be driven towards something. Um, but it is working. Look, I mean, our business, I love, 
I love being in the beer industry. First of all, it's a fun place to be, but it's also, you know, we're, we're in the second year of our turnaround of this company. Um, you know, it's been a challenging, challenging decade, decade plus for the beer industry and for our business, uh, our business as well. And two and a half years ago, we launched a revitalization plan really to turn around the company. Um, and when you look at the results that we're having right now, last year, we grew the top line for the first time in a decade um, with the company. Coors Light and Neuralite have their strongest um, share trends in over five years right now. They both grew NSR for um, last year for the first time in, in many years. Our above premium uh, portfolio is growing to record levels. We've um, we've launched into products we've never had before, like uh, like an energy drink here. We've got whiskeys. So we're, we're actually going to scale in things beyond beer as well. Um, and it's having a real benefit uh, to the business. So I think the approach we're having in totality across each of those spaces uh, is definitely working. Um, it's it's personally, I think I'm incredibly proud to be part of the team that's doing that every day. Um, and it's honestly very exciting to hear, right? To see the turnaround story, to see all these efforts paying off. One of the interesting things about your organization is that you have a business leader in Pete Marino who came out of a communications background. He's now president of Emerging Growth. Um, and for those who know Pete, you know, he ran a, a PR firm um, in our industry and was the head of communications um, at Miller Coors at one point. And you know, he was a longtime communications leader before becoming a business leader. I'm curious, as you, as you look at all of the successes of the company, and you think about how do you talk about the, the impact that communications has delivered to that, right? And have you, have you figured out the silver bullet in terms of measuring the impact of communications on that business impact? And, you know, short of that, just how do you explain, you know, to your business stakeholders the role communications is playing in driving that business impact? Well, if I figure out the silver bullet, I'm going to be writing a book and I'm not going to give it away on, uh, uh, here today. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, I think the role of communications has changed just massively over the last few years. And then we really think back to late 90s, early 2000s. I mean, we're in a totally different environment right now. Um, and I look at that like communications is the, the one place in an organization where everything else actually comes together. It's the one place where where legal comes together with marketing, which comes together with supply chain, which comes together with sales and emerging and strategy and finance. And they're all come together in communications to tell that story, right? And so we have this unique vantage point um, on the business, which gives us a unique ability to understand who we are as a company, to understand where we are trying to go as a company, and then to understand how to actually get there. And so I think the companies who've really figured that out have a significant leg up on their competitors in the marketplace, right? Because you go back to what we talked about earlier. If you can, if you can build belief, if you can create confidence in your company, your employees are going to show up wanting to work. You're going to have, when you, when you look out at the, at the marketplace, everyone's talking about the great resignation, right? It can be easier to re recruit and attract talent. It's going to be easier to get your customers to, to, to want to prioritize you, you know, for our for a space like ours and CPG. It's going to be easier for you to go to investors and analysts and have a conversation about the future of that business and get them to invest. And so we have this critical role. You know, I, I think for, for us, I have my 
I work for the CEO. That's he's, I report up to to our CEO, to Gavin. I think that's the right space. I think that's the right structure. Um, so I, I think the the organizations, companies, whatever organization you may happen to be at, places that have really figured out that communications is not just a uh, senior doer, but is really a strategic advisor inside any organization are the ones that are going to um, be better off than, than those that have not. So Adam, I, I, we're, we're getting close on time and I want to wrap with two questions that are targeted more towards um, people who are probably earlier in their careers, right? Sure. That, um, they, they obviously can't see you here on this podcast, but if they could, they'd see that if I'm not mistaken, you're probably still eligible for 40 under 40. So you're a young guy in the top job reporting to the CEO of a major corporation. A lot of people would probably aspire to having a career like you've had. So when you think about in that context, two questions. First is if you could tell yourself you know, earlier in your career some piece of advice or something that worked for you and you just wish you knew it earlier, right? Like, what, what would that be? And then the second question is, as you look forward and as you think about hiring and those kinds of things, what are the skills or the mindsets that you think people should embrace? I, I have a very, this is like central core philosophy to me. And you have to be hungry. That, that's the way I put it. There's some people may have other ways to describe it. You have to be hungry. You know, I can teach someone to write a press release. You know, we've got, you can learn to write a good tweet or to understand how to analyze data and insights and, and use that to, to be, to have more, you know, impactful communication. So those are learned skills, but you can't teach someone to want to succeed. Um, and that to me is everything. So when I go out and I look, you know, when I'm, when we're interviewing people, um, that it's it's an intangible, but that's that is the that is a determining thing for me, because ultimately, if the if there's someone out there who who has that fire in their belly and has that drive and has that motivation to go out and succeed, they're going to figure it out. They're gonna they're they're going to they're, when they encounter a very difficult challenge, which we all do, and not just in communications in in life, they're going to figure it out. They're going to know how to how to navigate an organization, not just because they know that, you know, Michelle down the hall is the person to go to when you have a problem with this, but they're going to know how to fit. They're going to have that desire and that drive to go, to go sort it out. And that to me is everything. So it's, you know, I think you have to know how much you, you want to win. Um, And that's going to, I think that's going to determine your success in this role and realistically in any role. Because ultimately, if you're not happy and you don't really have the desire and the big drive to go win, what are you going to do? I mean, you know, you might be able to be the smartest press release writer and the best, you know, the best person to pick up the phone and pitch reporters or to, or to, you know, sort of assess the landscape. But if you can't, if you can't get the most out of each of those skills that you have, then, then ultimately there's always going to be someone who's going to be better, uh, going to be better at you, better than you. And I, I don't, you have I don't to know, know how much you want to win. Yeah. I love yeah. that. Yeah. And, and for younger you, right. Is there anything that you could impart in terms yeah. of wisdom or something you've learned along the way to younger you, what would it be? I think you have to bet on yourself. You know, you, you know, how many of us, I mean, we all still do it. I still do it. Right? You second guess yourself. Oh, well, 
there's, there's gotta be someone out there who's, who's smarter, who's had this experience and, you know, maybe, maybe I should, maybe I shouldn't, you know, you have to be willing to bet on yourself, you know, um, you know, no one hired you because you're, you're dumb. You're not, you're smart. They hired you because of your instincts, because you're, because of your skills, because you're smart, because they saw something in you and you've got to bet on yourself and you've got to be willing to take smart risks. Um, and if you can do that and you have the drive and you have the desire and, um, you're going to be great. I tell the team all the time, and I've done this, you know, in all the places I've been, whether that's in the, you know, public sector or in politics or, or, or here at, at uh, in a corporate environment. Um, you know, if you, if you try something, it's well thought through, it's reasoned, and you try something and it fails and it fails miserably and is a big disaster. I will be here to help clean up the glass. That's okay. You know, that's okay. But, but it's better to take a risk on yourself and fail sometimes then to not take the risk because that's you, you're going to fail no matter what in that case. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's great advice and it's an in, inspiring reminder to bet on yourself. Yeah. It doesn't matter if you're 22, 23, 24 years old, or if you're, or if you're 65 and you've been doing this for 40 years, right. You've got to know that, that, that you bring something to the table that, that no one else does and don't be afraid to raise your voice and, 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 uh, and help move the conversation forward. Well, Adam, thank you very much uh, for sharing both your your in, insider tales as well as your insights. Um, I think people are really going to enjoy hearing from you, and uh, we appreciate your time. Awesome. Yeah, thanks. Appreciate it having me on. All right. Here, as always, are some key takeaways from this conversation with Adam. Number one, pick your battles, but put the customer first. Molson Coors and Anheuser-Busch have a famous rivalry that has resulted in everything from hilarious jab ads and online snark to real actual lawsuits. When asked whether this kind of public sparring with your competitor in a marketing context is worthwhile, Adam cited that it has to ultimately serve the customers. In their recent campaign, The World's Dumbest Math Problem, which is hilarious, I suggest you check it out. In this campaign, Miller sought to enlighten calorie-conscious beer drinkers that their product, Miller 64, had less carbs and less calories than Michelob Ultra. This seems like a typical jab, but ultimately, many consumers had no idea there was a lower calorie option, and thus the ad was successful because it served the customers by educating them. Number two, ESG is not only the right thing to do, it can serve the product and the company. Molson Coors has been an innovator in ESG since way before it was even a thing. When founder Bill Coors invented the recyclable aluminum can and gave the technology away for free, so it would become ubiquitous across the industry, resulting in less steel cans on the side of the road. Today, Coors follows the same example with multiple ESG initiatives that serve the environment as well as the company. The company's 75 plus year sustainable agricultural standards for growing barley not only are much better for the earth, but make the beer taste noticeably better. Programs that prevent water leakage at production facilities not only save water, but save the company money. Finding intelligent ways to make your ESG programs impact your bottom line as well as the Earth's can enable sustainability to be even more sustainable. Number three, be there to pick up the glass. So this was kind of a throwaway point that Adam made towards the end of the interview, but I think it bears repeating and some focus. 
When discussing his advice for aspiring marketing leaders, Adam mentions the importance of betting on yourself and taking risks. He also mentions that he empowers his more junior staff to take intelligent calculated risks by guaranteeing them that if their idea turns out to be a disaster, he will stand by their side and he will help them clean up the mess. This is what excellent leadership looks like. It's about inspiring your team, not only with inspirational phrases, but with your word that if the chips are down, you'll be by their side and help them pick up the pieces. Anyway, guys, thank you as always for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, why not share it with your friends and colleagues on LinkedIn? Don't forget to follow the show on Instagram at Lippy Taylor. That's L-I-P-P-E-T-A-Y-L-O-R. And to learn more about our agency, visit us at LippyTaylor.com. Thanks again for listening to Frictionless Marketing. Thank you for listening to Frictionless Marketing. If you enjoyed this episode, you might want to check out Paul's best-selling book, Friction Fatigue, What the Failure of Advertising Means for Future-Focused Brands. In Friction Fatigue, Paul explains to readers why advertising is broken and provides a frictionless marketing framework to help build your brand in an era where advertising is no longer the answer. You'll learn how to protect your business against competitors and lead the pack with fresh marketing strategies that will help you prepare for a future where the consumer rules. Friction Fatigue is now available on Amazon and as a book on tape on audible.com. Thanks again for listening.